The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewired.com. And 1335 youth, 7th and 12th graders. This morning's reading is from Revelation, Book of Revelation, chapter 1, <coughs> verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me like a, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is today's work. Well, good morning. I'm glad you guys are with us today. If you are visiting with us, you jumped into an exciting time as we look at Revelation. And this is not something to bring fear, but to encourage. So John gets this vision from God, and it is to encourage the church. And when we think at the end of all things, too often our culture puts fear around it and mystery and different things, and God gives us this revelation to encourage us, to strengthen us, to help us look forward in anticipation of the return of Christ. And so we are in the introduction. If you missed uh, last week's, you can find that online. And if you have a Bible, open it to Revelation uh, chapter 1. You can use one there in the seat in front of you. It'll be on the screen as well if you just want to follow along there. But verses 9 through 11 is where we'll start. It says this in verse 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom 
and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Jeff, you did better than I did, Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John introduces to us what the situation is, what's going on, what he was told, what he is told to do. And so he introduces to us where we're going in this book. It's what John sees. God is showing John a series of pictures, and he says, I want you to write this down. I want you to show these things to the church in writing as I show them to you here. And so he was there, he says, because of like so many others, the testimony of Jesus was unacceptable. Let that sink in for a minute. He's being persecuted. He's sent to an island to do hard manual labor at the end of his age because the testimony of Jesus Christ is unacceptable to the world. It hasn't changed. The world still finds it unpalatable. One theologian has said that the West, however, has done such a great job blending in that no one sees any difference. I think we're in that situation of the frog in the frying pan, so to speak. We're, we're, we're trying to reach so many people without offending people that we lose the power of the gospel. God's truth hasn't changed. And when we say this is who God is, this is what God says, it's different than the world. And so John preaching this gospel, and he's preaching it in truth and in love. He's not beating people up with the gospel of Jesus. He wants them to see the love of Christ for them, that there is one who came to save them from sin, who would go and die a death at the cross for them and reconcile them back to God. He's not trying to beat them up. He's, he's trying to rescue people. But because the ethics of the kingdom are different, because the standard of Christ is different than the standard of the world, it's unpalatable. It's, it's not acceptable. So he's being persecuted, and he says, I'm here on this island suffering in tribulation. He was being persecuted just as others were. He says here this, he says, I, John, now, now notice these words here, your brother and partner in the tribulation. He's a brother with them. When communism fell in Central Europe and Poland, there was this time where the people were all together, and they called it solidarność, or solidarity. They, they came together. They were in the same environment, the same suffering, the same moment, and they found this brotherhood, and they, they came together. And, and John is saying the same thing to the church. He's like, we in this moment are suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your brother. I am your partner in this. We are preaching this, and we have solidarność. We have solidarity in this. We come together. He says that this is important for us. 
I think it's interesting. Like you read the introduction, you're like, wow, that's kind of a formal introduction. Ah, your brother or partner. And he goes through and he's like, I was in the spirit and all that. It's like, why does he write this? Well, the spirit has him write this saying that we, the church, should be together in the gospel of Christ. He says, I'm a fellow companion with them. And he goes on to say, I am a partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He's a fellow companion. He's suffering in Christ just as so many others are suffering. He's going to send this letter to the churches in Asia and they're suffering. They're under persecution. He says, I too am with you in this. He says, we are in the kingdom together. We are marked by Christ and we are in the same kingdom together. Different locations, different people, different backgrounds, but one in Jesus. He says, I'm with you. We are of the kingdom. He says, and in the patience of Christ. Now, this term, patience of Christ, this this connotes the, the hope of faith that produces endurance. He says, we have a hope that gives us an endurance to, to keep going, to keep pressing in, to keep soldiering on for the king and the kingdom. He says, we have this patience. I'm, I'm a brother with you. I'm a partner with you. Here's the thing. Not just the bridge, like we should have unity in our body, but in the bigger body of Christ, there's a unity in the gospel. There's a unity in Christ that, that reaches beyond just the bridge. We're in it together. Sadly, if you just take some time and scroll around the internet, that's what we all love to do, right, in our free time, you can find that we're not in it together. Satan is really good at helping us protect the gospel so much that instead of focusing on our mandate to go and share this love of Christ with those who are perishing and to get them saved, that's our job. That's what Jesus said when he left, like, go and make disciples. So instead of doing that, what we do is we look around and we set up our YouTube platforms and our different things and we say, this guy's a heretic because he doesn't preach revelation the way I do. (laughs) Somebody will parse my words. Someone's going to go on and say, yeah, I don't think you should watch the bridge stuff because that pastor there, he's premillennial and all that. And, you know, that's not what the Bible teaches and that like, and some, lo and behold, they're out there. We should be in Christ together. John is saying, hey, we're in this together. And Satan has has done such a good job of getting us to look at each other and point fingers at each other that we're not changing our communities. People aren't being saved the way they should be. So here, John says, listen, church, I'm with you. We are together. Now, this isn't new. I'm using our circumstance today just because we all can relate to that. We've seen these different things. Now, I'm not talking about calling out false teaching and heresy and things like that. Like, there's a place for that. But we are, we're beyond that. There's such an attitude of rightness or self-righteousness that pervades the church that, that we tear one another down because we don't hold to the same views in lesser things. So John is saying, in the essentials, we have unity. 
But this was something that John even saw himself. John was a part of this himself, this idea of disunity. Listen to this passage. This is Mark chapter 9. It's a little bit long. It's verses 38 through 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of, evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their, where their worm does not die and the, fir- and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That whole passage goes together. They say, we were looking over there and these people don't do it the way we do it. They weren't following us. They weren't with us. They weren't like us. And he says, listen, they're preaching the gospel. Paul even mentions this. I was talking with Jeff before service, and and he brought this up to my remembrance. Paul even says, "If, if they're preaching and they're tearing me down like I really don't care, they're preaching the gospel and it's going forward. That's what's important to him. Jesus is making the same statement. He says here, they are are preaching, and they're for us. They're not against us. And what does he do then? Then he turns to their personal piety. But watch how you're living. What are you doing? What's your eye doing? What's your hand doing? What's your foot doing? He says, better for you to be following after Christ in all of your ways and, and, and march into the kingdom doing the things that God would have you do than to be cast out. In the end here, he says, have salt within yourselves. Notice he says, everyone will be salted and seasoned with fire. Jesus is the ultimate judge. We don't have to worry. We don't have to wring our hands. God is able to protect the gospel. He's the one who came and gave us the good news in his flesh. He's able to protect it. He's able to make it continue on and keep going. It will not be thwarted. So we don't have to wring our hands and say, God, I'm going to help you out here. We need to watch our lives and be at peace with one another. So when we see the works of God happening around us, we just bless it and move on. We don't need to be so focused there. We each have our own harvest field. And John's saying, we're all in it together. We're in the same kingdom, same Lord, same baptism, same spirit. He says, we're all moving together, and so we need to have solidarity. We don't need to be divided. 
So we watch our lives and we move forward. I was thinking, you know, often we say, pray for me and I'll pray for thee. But do we often pray for we? <laughs> I know that's not grammatically correct. I just made Bethany probably cringe. But, uh, but as we think about it in the grand scale, I'm praying for me, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for all of us, and I'm praying for the church, the, the global church. I'm praying for the church, that, that she will continue on and march forward. So there's suffering, there's tribulation, but in light of it, why are we suffering? Why do we have tribulation? And this is a good question. Is it because of our, our tribulation is self-inflicted? I mean, we all have struggles and we all have stuff, but are we being persecuted for the right reasons? Is it because of, of the world and our gospel and our lives are contrary to it? Is it because of the spiritual warfare that is happening in the heavenlies? Is it because you are living for Christ or is it self-inflicted? 1 Peter 2, verses 20 to 23, this is what Peter writes. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we see that Peter's saying, if you are sinning, you're living like the world, or you're acting in ways that are contrary to God, or you're breaking even the world's laws and things, and you suffer for that, that's on you. <laughs> like, you, you're getting... The, you're reaping the harvest, so to speak. My father-in-law would say many Christians like to sow their wild oats throughout the week and then come to church on Sunday and pray for a, for a harvest failure. We don't want those crops to come to fruition. I've been doing everything wrong all week long, so Lord, please help me. You know, Peter says, no, if you're living that way, that's, there's no glory in that. That's not honoring Christ. That's, that's not how we are to be. He says, but if you are like Christ, then that is, is with honor. That is glorious. It brings Christ to be seen in your suffering. John says in verse 10, so 9, he says, I'm with you. We're partners. In verse 10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was in the Spirit. This is not just being filled with the Spirit. This is not just walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, walking in the Spirit. This is something different. Being in the Spirit is something different than being filled with the Spirit. We're called to be filled with the Spirit, continually filled with the Spirit. But John is saying, I was on the Lord's day, I was worshiping, and in the middle of my worship, I was caught up in the Spirit. Something happened. Something different happened to him there. So it's much like Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. This is Peter. It says, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. 
and he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So Peter is caught up in the spirit. He's, he's praying on the rooftop. And God uses, look at this, God uses his natural situation. He's hungry. And so what does God do? He teaches them something very spiritual about the Gentiles in, in, in giving him this vision about killing and eating. Isn't God good like that? He takes us right where we are and he shows us things. He reveals things to us. So Peter, caught up in the spirit in prayer, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 5, this is what Paul writes. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on uh, to, to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things. This is actually Paul talking about his own experience. He says, I was in this moment of prayer and I was caught up in the spirit. And God showed him things that he doesn't reveal to us. God had a, had a purpose for this, for Paul. But Paul's saying, as, as Peter and as we see here in John, that, that they're being carried beyond natural, normal senses into a state where God would reveal something supernatural. So in that moment of meeting with God, of worshiping, of praying, God does something supernatural there. John, again, in worship, Peter and Paul, in prayer. At times, God will meet his people in special ways to encourage, to teach, and to guide. We don't know all the things that Paul was shown, all the things he heard. That was just for Paul. And he says, and because of that great revelation, I was also given a thorn in the flesh to keep me humble. So we see that, that God is working in John. He's working in Peter, he works in Paul, he works in his people. Each situation is spoken of. Now, get this, each of these situations, they're spoken of not as normative, like everybody has to have this, but each is spoken of as something God does at his discretion. So God is the one who does this. God is the one who brings about this being caught up in the Spirit if he has something for them if the Spirit is to impart a special gift or give them something. It is a fulfillment of, I believe, Joel 2, 28. It says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. So in these last days, the Spirit of God is being poured out. And he is, he's working in John's life, and he works in our lives. And, 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 he's, and he's pouring himself out, and he's encouraging and moving and helping the church. Now, these are not experiences that any of these men sought after. We don't read of them praying, Lord, catch me up. Lord, take me to heaven. Lord, give me this. Lord. They're not experiences that they're seeking, but at the same time, they're not experiences that they reject. It's the mystery of God. It's, it's what God does. It's 
It's what he has determined to do in that moment. So we come together as a church. And when God works in individual lives, we say, well, Lord bless you in that. What did God show you? What did God teach you? How does that comport with Scripture? How does that encourage us? How did that encourage you? How is God working? And we bless Him and we move on. We don't divide. Verses 10 and 11, again, this is what we read here. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, man, that one's going to keep getting me, I bet you, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So what happens next is the calling of John. It's to, he's called to write what he sees uh, in service of Christ. So he's given revelations. He's supposed to see things. He's like, you are to write this down. So he's to write down what he sees and encourage the church with it. So the question is, what does John see? So verses 12 through 16. Then I turn to see, so he hears the voice. Isn't that the natural inclination? When you hear a loud sound or thunder in the distance or whatever, what, what do we naturally do? We turn to see where that's coming from or what that is. Or If you live over in this area and you're by the steel company over here and you hear those loud bangs, it always, I lived over here for a year and every time I hear that, boom, or whatever, I'm always like, what's going on? It's like, oh, it's that place again. Like, I know what it is, but it always catches my attention. So John hears, write these things down and he turns and he sees this. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So John sees seven golden lampstands. He sees one like the Son of Man in the midst of the lampstands, and then he describes how he looks. In his hands, he sees seven stars, and coming from his mouth, he sees a two-edged sword. Now, Jesus is so kind to us here because he makes it very plain what the lampstands and the stars are. He's like, okay, look at verse 20. He says, John, you're looking at this. You're seeing this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he tells John, sometimes in Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature again, so we're, some images are, are kind of mysterious to us, and we're trying to understand it, and we may not understand some of it. Others, just like this, it's made very plain. Here's what you're seeing. Here's what it is. So he tells John what he's seeing. This is a vision given and it gives us insight into our spiritual environment. So first, let's just look at this, the golden lampstands. Now seven, again, apocalyptic literature, numbers, colors, images, they can all have meaning. There's seven lampstands. So I believe he's writing to seven actual churches, but at the same time, that number seven is a fullness. It's a, the fullness of the church. 
So he's saying the fullness of the body of Christ, the bride. So he is going to be sharing this with those churches, but the seven represents seven actual churches, and it also represents the greater body, the fullness of the body. Now, it's interesting that it's lampstands because lampstands are very significant. So for those who would get this letter and they, they hear, I saw seven golden lampstands, they're immediately, if they have any connection back to Judaism or if they're Jewish themselves, they're going to be thinking about the Exodus and about the tabernacle. They're going to be thinking about what is a lampstand? Why a lampstand? What does that mean? What's significant about that? Well, they're made of pure gold. Everything outside of the tabernacle is bronze and brass, but in the tabernacle, it's pure gold. Each lampstand probably weighed about 75 pounds. Can you imagine someone say, honey, can you just move the lampstand for me? (laughs) You know, 75 pounds, pure gold. Now, the gold itself is to represent God's deity and his holiness in the tabernacle. So God is with them, and he is holy. But the tabernacle also in this, has these lampstands that are shaped like almond branches. And they're all one piece. They're not sectioned and then put together. It's all molded as one piece. Think about it, the church is one, unified, gold, showing the deity and holiness of God. One piece brought together and shaped like almond branches. And in the Hebrew, the, the word that they would use would be shakade, which comes from the root word shakad, which means to hasten, to hasten along the fullness of the promises. So it's a lampstand that shows the deity and holiness of God who hastens his promises to his people, who brings these things about. So the branch itself is also a reminder that God is the source of life. He's the source of life-giving power and a reminder that he will fulfill that promise to give us new life. So he says, I see the church and it's a lampstand. The light in the lampstand is the glory of God, which reflects off the gold and gives light to the tabernacle. Now, there's no windows in the tabernacle. That's the only source of light. So here, the church shines in darkness. We are placed as a lampstand to shine in the darkness the light of Christ. It has oil in it as its fuel, and the oil is to be in it constantly. It's to always burn. It's not to go out. And the oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So the church is to reflect the light of Christ. John 9, 5. Did I give you that one? Yeah. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We are to reflect the light of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. So we reflect Christ and his glory. The, the, the church, the bride, she is to be full of the Holy Spirit, empowered by God to continue declaring God's glory and bring more and more people into the kingdom. So he says, I saw these lampstands, and those are the churches. We're a lampstand. The bridge, Bible church. We're part of the greater church, and we are a lampstand in this community. And we are to fulfill all of that. 
That's who we are. But then he goes on to say he saw these stars in the right hand. And the stars are the angels of the churches. Now, each church in this passage then has an angel assigned to it, a messenger, a guide, someone to help, sent from the angelic host from God to them to help them, to, to be with them, to, to help them through everything. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14 says this. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are they not all, here it is, are they all, not all, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They minister to us. Folks, we have an angel here. (laughs) If you can see him, let me know. Some people have seen angels entertained angels in their hospitality. If we believe that we're in a spiritual battle and that God is real and that Satan, our enemy, is real and that the fallen angels are real, then these angels are real as well. And they are sent to minister to us, to the body, to encourage us, to help us. We have an angel who looks in and marvels at what God does in you and I because they cannot have the same relationship that we have with Christ. We have fallen and yet can be redeemed. When the angels fall, they are reserved for judgment. So he has the angelic host, and here it's seven. Again, the fullness of the angelic hosts. So the angels are at the, in the right hand of Jesus. So that's a, the right hand could be a place of safety and strength. So that no matter the problems that we are to go through or that are to come our way, the church is able to be confident of God's help and care. How can we be confident? One, he helps us, he cares for us, but two, he sends angelic hosts to equip us, to encourage us, to help us. So we have confidence that the one who holds all the stars of heaven in his right hand will help us and care for us in times of calamity, in times of trouble. So they're all going through tribulation. He says, we're all suffering, but look at what God is doing. Look at what he's done for us. Look at how he's made us. We're lampstands, and he has the angels, and he sends them to us. And all of that is great, but none of that compares to the next section, the vision of the Son of Man. Look at this. This is the Jesus that's coming back. This is our Jesus. Verses 13 and following. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So we see this vision. In the midst of God's churches, Christ is standing. He's in the midst of us. He's clothed in authority. The golden sash he wears is that of the high priest of heaven. His hair is white like wool or snow. He is the ancient of days with all wisdom and 
purity, his eyes like a flame of fire. In light of revelation, his eyes are the eyes that search out and penetrate all that's hidden to bring righteous judgment. His feet are like burnished bronze. Having been through refining, he is perfect, and he has perfect stability and strength, and he will stand for eternity, never to be overcome. His voice is that of many waters. That's power and majesty like a roaring waterfall. He holds the heavenly hosts with strength and authority in his hand, and out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword, so that when he speaks, his words are sharp and penetrating. His countenance, like the strength of the sun, so strong, so great, that it's hard for John to even look upon him. And it's at that moment, John is overwhelmed with the holiness and awesomeness of Christ, that he just falls at his feet like a dead man. When have you experienced the holiness and awesomeness of Christ? How did you respond to that? Because what John does here, that's not uncommon. We see it in scriptures. It's not uncommon that when people are in the presence of God, when they see this, that, that they are moved. Genesis 17, 3. And you're going to go through these passages. I'm not going to read them all, but you can flash them up, okay? Genesis 17, 3. <clears throat> this is Abraham. And when God is speaking to Abraham, it says in this passage, Abraham fell on his face. Joshua 5, 14 and 15. Joshua, in the presence of God, falls on his face. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28 and chapter 3, verse 23. Ezekiel falls on his face when the glory of God appears. Daniel chapter 8 17 and also in chapter 10, 15. Daniel, when God is speaking and his glory is there, Daniel falls on his face. Matthew 17, verse 6. That's Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration. They fall down because of they're in the presence of Christ, glorified. Acts 26, 14. So Paul has his testimony in this passage. He says, he and his companions fall down. When Christ appears to them. Revelation 1.17, that's where we are today. John sees the Christ in heaven and he falls down. Now this wasn't just a few places in scripture. I mean, it's would say, well, those were all major prophets and these are apostles and that. So it's like, it's unique. It's not unique. That's what I want to point out. When we are in the presence of the Spirit, when, when the Spirit comes and when God is with us, there are times when we are just brought low before him. Edwards, Whitfield, Wesley, Finley, Finney, all report that in the great awakenings of America and of England, that there was this movement of God. And when the presence of God came in the preaching and in the times of prayer, people were brought low. Some of them wailing because of their sin. Others brought low because of the holiness of God and rejoicing that God was with them. And even Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about the revivals that happen in America and overseas. And he says, it's not uncommon that when the Spirit is reviving his people, that people are brought low. It still happens today. Now, the point is this. 
It is not uncommon for people to be laid low before God's presence, nor is, and nor is it the experience that we seek for authentication of his presence. Does that make sense? So it's not uncommon that God may do this. You may be in prayer and God just moves in your prayer time and you're just, the weight of the Spirit is on you and you're just brought low. You get a vision of Christ and the scriptures you're reading and you're just like, I'm just undone. Brought low. But that doesn't have to happen to authenticate his presence. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. When we come to Christ and we receive the gospel, we have the Holy Spirit. He's always with us. So we don't need these things to authenticate that Christ is with us or that we're more spiritual than anyone else. No, but God moves as he determines, as he wills, and his spirit at times falls on people. At times he reveals things to us, and we see, like John, we can be brought low. Oh. What is important in that then is this. What is important is how God changes you because you've been in his presence. How have you been transformed? How have you been changed? How do we know that, that these are authentic? Well, we know because of the fruit that they produce, the transformation that takes place. Now, that can happen individually and in, you know, in light of the, the revivals of American history and of the awakenings of American history, it's happened corporately too. So, as we wrap up, here's some questions for you. Are we ushering in God's presence? When we come and we meet in this place, are we saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, fill this place. I believe you're here. Angel, equip us, encourage us, help us as we worship our God in heaven. Are we ushering in his presence? Are we seeking him? Are we desiring to pursue Jesus above everything else? Do we want to walk in the power, authority, and good works that he has for us? He has something for you to walk in, to do, and he gives you the power and he equips you to do it and the authority in Christ to be his ambassador in that. Or do we just feel content to add church to our list of activities we do in the week? That's good. Check. I did the Jesus thing this week. That's, you know, it's part of my routine. Brothers and sisters, let me put, it this, put this to you. Let us put off those things that have too long hindered us and let us press in together. Let us press in together and see our community and beyond changed for Christ. I'm going to pray, um, and then I'm going to have Carl come at the end of my prayer. He's going to share uh, what God's doing there, and we're going to pray for, for you and what, how that ties in to the global church. Pray with me. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping Him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, 
please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.